0: You have 24 Minutes, the podcast from 24 Hour Nation. My name is Randall White. (laughs) Ordinances, rules, sanctions, penalties, regulations, consequences, these can all help reduce harm in our nightlife spaces. However, they can also produce harm. Research now suggests new ways for us to think and act differently when establishing safer spaces inside bars, clubs, and music venues. Evidence also supports new steps to take that will extend safety into shared public spaces outside of the businesses that are licensed to serve alcohol. In this conversation with Dr. Philip Wads at the University of New South Wales, we talk about new thinking for nightlife security personnel, and going beyond law enforcement to create communities of care in our nightlife districts. But first, we define harm reduction in our 24 Minutes with Philip Watts.
1: Harm reduction did emerge, certainly out of the alcohol and other drug kind of research space, and it was about simply reducing the harms associated with drug and alcohol consumption. So finding interventions, finding ways in which we might alleviate the conditions that give rise to the type of harms, be they health or social, individual, psychological harms that are attached to certain forms of consumption. But that's not necessarily how it's interpreted and viewed outside of the alcohol and other drugs space. And I don't actually, while while my research has done a lot on alcohol and other drugs, obviously, I've done lots of research around nightlife, but it's that's not the kind of field that I come from. And so I've been engaging with policy makers uh, and government officials who have a, an entirely different view of harm reduction. And so a much broader view of harm reduction that takes in things like policing that takes right. in things like um legislation that's aimed to again might be you know reduce rates of consumption drug drug and alcohol consumption that would all fall under the remit uh, in that broader category of harm reduction and i think that's a really interesting point that that probably uh we may discuss a little bit more um, today because i think it's those tensions that provide us an opportunity to, do, to view more holistically harm reduction and build better kind of integration in in the ways in which we enact harm reduction.
2: So I, I want to talk a little bit too about when your research around policing and regulation of nightlife and music festivals, alcohol, other drugs, violence, harm reduction, you completed your PhD right before Sydney instituted its famous lockout laws. As a, and a, as their approach, their policy approach to quote, bad behavior, I'm curious as to your view of that period of time and how it has also informed your work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I there's multiple phases of my research, um, and each of them have given completely different insight into the way in which, again, harm reduction is viewed, but also the kind of impacts of regulation on the way in which people engage in nightlife so as you said I started my PhD in 2008 you know Sydney nightlife was heaving it was uh, a very vibrant place to go there's no question that there were there were problems in pockets of Sydney nightlife um, that were attached to probably it being kind of oversaturated in particular precincts, precincts like King's Cross that I know you've talked about with other um, guests on your podcast. Um, It was an amazing place to go out. I did lots of my um, doctoral fieldwork in King's Cross, Um, but no question, it, it had some edge to it. That was part of the attraction of why people went there, but it was also part of the reason why things did kind of evolve um, or devolve and and we had we had problems there unquestionably and, and very tragically a number of a number of deaths of patrons. Um, that kind of precipitated the need or or the the kind of political desire and will to to enact what uh, what is popularly known as as the lockout laws. So that was the kind of first phase. it was the the really um, kind of dynamic edgy Sydney nightlife, great live music, great dance acts. Um, really uh, full nightclubs throughout the city, um, and then a complete transformation, not, not overnight, but pretty quickly after the enactment of the 2014 um, lockout laws. Um, it was actually a suite of, um, uh, of policy that was enacted, was actually called the, the Sydney Entertainment Precinct Plan of Management, it was about 20 different policy interventions that were brought in at the same time, which has relevance because uh, I did some evaluation on some of that. And, you know, it was certainly a bit of a problem in terms of a researcher trying to figure out what drove changes um, in in kind of harms at the time. But that was, you know, that was a watershed moment for Sydney, as as many have spoken about. It, it really did radically change the landscape um, of how people engaged in nightlife in Sydney, um, it displaced many people from from the city, um, so we saw really changed patterns of where people were going out, um, and 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 that brings its own set of issues. And again, highlighted the fact that there is a, a distinct relationship and a really complex relationship between the type of regulations we bring in, um, and the what and how people respond to that, um, and that can be both. Um, positive in terms of reducing harms. We saw far less um, alcohol related violence. That was a really documented um, kind of outcome of, of the lockout laws. But we also saw a displacement um, of that violence to kind of peripheral areas around the right. city. I want to go right to a couple of weeks ago, you spoke at NEON Sydney.
2: This was an international nighttime uh, economy forum. And without casting any aspersions on, existing programs that are out there and doing good work. He spoke about the need to move beyond isolated harm reduction services and lean into uh, the need to plan and connect collaborative harm reduction ecosystems that provide a bit more coverage in the nighttime economy. I want you to tell us about what you do, where you're doing it, what your focus is, and I'm going to give you the
1: floor here for a bit. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and again, thank you for the opportunity to speak about this because it's it's um, something I'm deeply passionate about. So yeah, I mean, I've done 15 years of research now um, on, on nightlife and mainly field-based, kind of intensive field-based research where I've spent a lot of time um, in nightlife precincts, even though that's getting harder to do um, because I'm not quite as young as I once was and uh, and all of those things. But what struck me throughout that time, and I've already said this, but I really want to emphasise it, is the way in which um, regulation shapes um, the different experiences that people have when they go out. And it's really complex, that relationship. So to give an example, um, in uh, in New South Wales, where, where where Sydney is based, where I live, um, we have something called the Responsible Service of Alcohol. It's um, a, a policy that governs the way in which we um, sell and, and trade uh, in licensed premises, but it also sets out um, very kind of um, strong um, punishment and, and kind of rules around um, the way that what staff need to do in situations of intoxication. It's, it's, it establishes fines, really strong fines um, around, you know, um, if you fail to comply with this legislation. So it's up to an $11,000 fine in New South Wales if a venue or staff member in that venue permits the the sale of alcohol to an intoxicated person. Again, I've documented this time and time. My doctoral research was really looking at the the working relationship between police and private security um, in nightlife settings and the way they can shape um, the nightlife experience. And again, we saw the relationship here between this piece of legislation. That is harm reduction legislation. It's designed to prevent intoxication and to make sure that intoxication doesn't escalate into more serious issues in nightlife settings. What I found during that fieldwork was that actually those rules um, and, and the, the sanctions, the penalties imposed um, based on those rules, was leading to kind of outcomes that were not harm-reducing at all, and in fact, were often harm-producing. What we were, what I was seeing was, um, was private security guards, they have a commercial imperative, they're employed by a venue, they don't want to see anybody getting an $11,000 fine. And so what they were doing, and what they're in fact asked to do in the legislation, is to eject people who are showing obvious signs of intoxication. Um, but what they were often doing was putting those people in cabs and just sending them home or, or you know, or sending them out the back door so that the police didn't see when they were walking down the strip and say, oh, that person's far too intoxicated. And then that that venue becomes the kind of site of further investigation. Um, and this is kind of widespread. There's also um, sections within that legislation that speak about violence and kind of Uh, It's a risk-based system. So, you know, if you have violence um, recorded against your venue, you uh, have uh, different trading restrictions imposed on you. And again, you can see the kind of interaction um, or the ways in which um, that might incentivise venues to kind of try to hide from kind of public inquiry the type of things that might be happening. And we know that happen in licensed venues, much of which is very difficult for venues to control. What I saw here, and and I've kind of documented since in other research, so I've done lots of research evaluating different harm reduction programs. At NEON a few weeks ago, I sat alongside Amy LeMay and and other kind of leaders um, from around the world, different kind of nighttime uh, economy leaders, um, and and heard from, you know, heard heard about the, the amazing individual harm reduction services that are happening in different cities. You know, from the Narcan kind of trials um, that Ariel Pallets was talking about in New York City to um, Dane Gorrell here in Sydney's Club 77 that do um, some amazing kind of anti-harassment um, work to, to ensure that their venue is a safe space. But it was all that. It was, you know, they're amazing programs. I love them. They should be, um, you know, rolled out as widely as possible. But they are individual And they they tend to stop at the door of the licensed venue. Um, And that can be a problem. That can be a problem because we have pieces of legislation like the RSA here in New South Wales that also require people to uh, or, or result in people being ejected from venues. And they're often ejected from venues when they're in quite vulnerable states. Um, And some evaluation work that I did of um, a a safe space kind of harm reduction program here. And I know you've, again, spoken with people who run safe space programs around the world. What what we found is that so many of the people that are turning up to these safe spaces have been ejected. They're being picked up by, um, you know, roving ambassadors that work in these safe space programs because they've been ejected from a venue and they're being ejected in, in the RSA, the these obvious signs of intoxication that require a venue to eject you are really advanced levels of intoxication. We're talking about things that affect your speech, your balance, um, and, and your basically your cognitive capacity. Um, and if you're waiting for somebody to slur their speech, if you're waiting for somebody to stumble um, if if somebody doesn't have the capacity to respond to questions, that's a really um, significant level of uh, of intoxication. That is actually quite a high level of risk. If you are ejecting somebody in that condition from a venue, you are setting up um, some really really dangerous possibilities and and we see that and I've seen it time and time again and the the evaluation we did into the take care safe space program here in Sydney really showed that that was the safety net um, that was in the public domain. Uh, And the public domain is a space in nightlife settings that isn't often um, as serviced um, when it comes to harm reduction. You know, as I said, we've got amazing harm reduction services inside venues, um, but we don't do as well in that coverage of of the public domain. And I think that's part of building a bigger ecosystem is connecting the dots here making sure that we are um, as concerned for um, the public as we are to the private it's like extending lighting you know we we want to make sure that we're not walking out of a venue that is real you know it's got disco balls got amazing lights and we're walking into a pitch black space you don't want to do that in relation to nightlife either and we need that kind of safety net and to do that safety net, we need to think more holistically about the integration of harm reduction services. So, who's responsible for that? Who needs to be responsible for that? I think there's many different actors um, that need to need to be involved in this. And I think um, when I was when I was thinking about how um, that that presentation I gave at Neon was was really about speaking to some principles that should underpin, um, um, well, or, or some principles from the evidence that we've extracted from the evidence that kind of underpin effective harm reduction. And and one of those uh, principles is collaboration, um, is is ensuring there are vehicles for effective collaboration in place um, and, and making sure that key stakeholders are at the table when it comes to ensuring that Uh, we take a kind of um, precinct-wide view of delivering these type of services. So, you know, making sure that you have venues there, making sure that you have... public transport um, staff there, making sure that you have local council who who in Australian context or it might be local government um, who have, you know, responsibility for public utilities um, and often for CCTV networks, Um, making sure that you have police and and, and ambulance and other emergency services at the table because they all have a role um, in ensuring Um, the kind of safety the broader safety um, of the community who go out at night and that's not just people who are in bars that is staff Um, that is all the other night workers who again you've uh, you've spoken about on your podcast There are absolutely you know it's it's such a diverse community the nighttime economy and and we need to make sure that harm reduction is not just focus on those who are drinking or taking drugs at night but everybody who's in the space yeah, building this ecosystem is is about kind of connecting all of those groups together.
2: And so in addition to collaboration, you're talking about the fact that we're kicking people out into the public space because we're wanting to get them out of the private space and we're not being as considerate with where they go, where they land. It's a displacement.
1: Absolutely. One of the other principles um, that, that I spoke about and, and, and speak about regularly is the need to base your service provision... Mm-hmm. On ideas of kind of what what, what we call pro sociality, um, so the ideas of of taking care of one another, building communities of care, and and actually this can start um, and and should start in relation to nightlife with private security and venue staff. Um, in 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 my research, um, too often, and I'm sure you've seen this, uh, you know, hundreds of times, um, that the first interaction between a patron. Um, sometimes who's had too much to drink, or uh, you know, is 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 becoming quarrelsome inside a venue, is they get a tap on the shoulder and they get heaved out. It's it's the biggest source of conflict that I've seen inside venues. Most of the conflict I see is not happening inside venues; it's outside of venues. But inside venues, the interactions between private security and patrons is a contestation that often escalates into into often horrible situations, um, violent situations. Um, What we're encouraging and and, and staff training and and other kind of initiatives need to be part of this is to reframe, you know, the the focus of security staff. They're working in hospitality. They are hospitality staff. There needs to be a focus um, for these people on delivering a uh, hospitality experience. That should be their default. And then, of course, their secondary function is a security function. But what we're encouraging is more interactions, more frequent interactions between private security staff and patrons. Yeah, where you build rapport, where you build trust, where you build an understanding, um and also, you know, um integrated into that is um forms of surveillance. Like you if you interact with people more, You see them, you see the the condition that they're in and you can monitor that more closely because you've got those more frequent points of contact. It also allows you, as I said, to build trust and rapport to the point where if a situation is escalating with a patron, if they are starting to look like this is going a little bit too far, then you've got some capital with them to Ah. draw on to say hey, buddy, maybe it's time, make the next one a mortar, maybe you should go and grab something to eat and then, you know, just take some time off. And that can often be far less of a kind of status challenge um, when you've had contact with that person previously, when you've been chatting with the group that somebody is drinking with. And it's just more effective communication. And so that's, again, part of this ecosystem that needs to change. We need to look holistically at the way in which we approach the kind of regulation of nightlife, um, to focus on being a bit more caring and having kind of harm reduction at the kind of heart and ethos of what we're trying to uh, what we're trying to do.
2: And it seems like mm, a business improvement district or an entertainment district or a city even could be the agent to kind of mobilize this. I'm hearing three things: it's having the security personnel rethink how they establish a relationship with the customer so that they can get somebody before the obvious signs of intoxication, that there's collaboration between the alcohol-serving businesses in this district, and that there's also a safe place for people to land. That's yeah. kind of what it boils down to right now. It's this new thinking. It's more than just intervening. It's
1: also about taking care. Absolutely. Yeah. And taking care you know, everybody's got a role to play in that. That might be bystanders. That might be people working in venues. Um, that might be, you know, um, the person working the late-night bus stand. You know, everybody's got the capacity um, to work together. And I think the more we clarify the roles that people have, making sure that the most appropriate service provider um, is intervening and providing that care, um, the better off we are. And that's, that's what harm reduction really is about making sure that we're not intervening so heavy-handedly that we often escalate situations. Safe spaces are about having peers doing a lot of intervention because that can provide a critical triage that that, um, moves past a lot of the access barriers that people need when they go out at night. So often people might need medical care. They're very reticent to do so because they feel like doing so is going to result in them um, being punished or having an adverse consequence in some way. They don't, they don't want to do that. And so having a, a safe space, having peer based ambassadors in the nighttime economy can often reduce barriers to access and allow people the confidence to kind of maybe access the more appropriate level of care for them. That's excellent thinking. I'm speaking with
2: Dr. Philip Wads. He's a senior lecturer in criminology at the School of Law Society and Criminology at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. You can connect with Dr. Wads on Twitter. He's Philip Wads, two L's, two D's, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-W-A-D-D-S. Also on LinkedIn, Philip Wads as well. And you can also go to the University of New South Wales um, staff listings and you can find Philip there. My final question of you, I could spend a lot more time on this topic because it fascinates the heck out of me whether they are in Mumbai, Mexico City, Madrid, or Melbourne, what do you believe to be the most important thing a local advocate for the nighttime economy could do to advance their city towards this more collaborative approach for harm reduction?
1: That's a big question. I think, you know, we can't be siloed in our approach to this. I think sometimes it's confronting hard questions. It's about acknowledging that there are often service providers better placed than you. I know that's certainly very hard conversations with police, for example, that maybe they're not the best place to be providing the types of care that we've been talking about in today's in today's session. So I think collaboration, making sure that you're engaging with all the different stakeholders because the value they can bring and the innovation that they can bring, particularly government, um, need to be engaging and and giving space and empowering um, local communities to find local solutions to their problems because the evidence is pretty clear that those tend to be the most effective in relation to harm reduction.
0: When it comes to nightlife districts, ask and answer the problematic questions, help break down silos between stakeholders, and identify those who could have a role in creating a collaborative community of care. This has been Season 2, Episode 15 of 24 Minutes from 24 Hour Nation. Visit us at 24HourNation.com and follow us on social media at 24HourNation.com.
2: My name is Randall White.